Happy Thanksgiving and Happy New Year as well. This uh, marks the, the first Sunday of the liturgical year. So in the liturgical year, it always starts with Advent. The liturgical year begins tracing the life of Jesus in the first half of it. And then the second half, we get to think about how the life of Jesus gets to be manifested in our ordinary lives. And so, of course, it starts in the life of Jesus with his coming. That's what Advent is all about. It's how, as Alex mentioned earlier, we live in between the first coming of Jesus at his birth and his second coming, whenever that may be. And in that way, Advent is kind of training for us to live in any season of life. Now, I know we have some seasoned saints in our church who have walked with God for a very long time, but I don't think that any of us were walking with Jesus back when he walked this earth. And so that means that for all of us, in some way, our daily lives are marked by the patterns of Advent, of how do we live in between the first and second coming of Christ. And so today I'd like for us to consider what can that look like for us in this season. And I want to propose that Advent trains us to wait for the return of the coming king. And so it trains us to wait for the return. It's a return because as we mentioned, he already came. You might remember how Jesus talked in his ministry about how the kingdom has drawn near. He said that a lot. And that begs the question of what exactly is the kingdom of God? And that's something that Father James preached on last week. He talked about how it's unlike any earthly kingdom because it's a kingdom of peace and it's a kingdom of truth and it's a kingdom whose foundations are unshakable that will never pass away. And it's unlike any earthly kingdom because it takes its character from its king. And Jesus is unlike anyone that you will ever meet in your life. If, if you read the Gospels, uh, which I hope we all do from, from time to time, we see that he's so different. He has deep compassion alongside fierce convictions. He says that he is God, but he is the humblest of men. And he is unmatched in his power, yet he takes his place among the powerless. He's unlike anything that we know elsewhere. And he comes and rules through his people to bring this paradoxical beauty in our lives and in this world. And to the degree that our lives and communities reflect that character of Jesus, his kingdom comes. And I think that's a beautiful thing, like this this picture of the character of Christ and that through him working in our lives, we get to be the agents that God uses to have that come more and more in the world around us. But it's oftentimes hard to see that beauty in the world around us and in ourselves. It might seem that this kingdom of God is more a kingdom of fairy tales and not the kingdom that's available to you and me here and now. And that's why you probably might have heard that the kingdom of God is something that's already but not yet. It's already because Jesus has already come to establish it, but it's not yet because it's not here in full. 
And this is what uh, one author has described as, though the war has been won, God's people still find themselves in a battle. We are free, but still bound, born again, but still experiencing death, delivered from sin, but still contending with it. That captures this already, but not yet. And so that's why Jesus not only talked about his kingdom that he was establishing in his life, he talked about how he would return to bring it to its fullness. And that's what we read about in the gospel reading today. Jesus was talking about what it was going to be like when he was going to come back and return and set all things right. And he says, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. I just want to have an aside here that when Jesus is talking about apocalyptic language, when Jesus is talking about the actual apocalypse, he expects his people to be at peace. And we often in our culture look at our situation with apocalyptic, through apocalyptic lenses, both on the right and on the left, we always act like the world is ending. But Jesus says that when the actual apocalypse comes, his people should be the people who are marked by peace. Um, But he says that when this is happening, when the apocalypse actually is coming, he says, raise your head because your redemption is drawing near. And that's interesting because some of us might think, oh, I thought that we were redeemed when you died and rose again. And that word sometimes does refer to redemption in that sense. But here he's using it in the sense of your redemption will be fully realized upon my, upon my return. Where we will be uh, both delivered from sin and no longer have to contend with it. Where we'll be free and no longer bound. When uh, though the battle has been won, it will be won in full. And so that's the return that we look for. And so in in the meantime, we wait. And here's a picture of what I think that's like. Perhaps you've been to a fancy wedding and you saw the bride and groom get married and perhaps they go away someplace to take pictures. And you don't know where they went, but you go to the reception and because it's a fancy wedding, they don't have appetizers, they have hors d'oeuvres. And you're eating these hors d'oeuvres and they're very nice and they taste great, but it's not the main course. Because you know that sometime the bride and groom are going to be come back, they're going to be introduced, and y'all are going to feast and party. And that is what it is like for us. We have seen the, the marriage and we're eating the hors d'oeuvres. We just have a foretaste as we're waiting. That's what it's like. So if that is what we're waiting for, how do we wait? I want to suggest two ways for us. First, in our pains, we wait with confidence. So it doesn't take long to live in this world to develop deep, deep desires in your heart. And I'm not talking about the things you want for Christmas. I'm talking about the things you long for in life. Oftentimes these are unmet or only partially met. 
And these things that always bubble up in our heart seldom come up in conversation. And that's why C.S. Lewis, when he talked about, he called this the inconsolable secret that all of us have. And for us as Christians, we think that this deep desire is not just something that's culturally conditioned in us or just a trick of evolution. We think these longings have a purpose to drive us deeper into the heart of God. And C.S. Lewis talks about how in these longings we often look for them in our present or hope for them in our future or look or pretend we had them at some point in the past. But he says that so long as we look for them in these things, we'll never actually find it. Uh, he, goes, he goes on to write that it is only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, and news from a country we have never visited. And so what are those deep desires that are in your heart this morning? God wants us to use those desires to draw us into his heart. And Zechariah gives us a picture of how our desires are met in Christ. So Zechariah was a prophet who uh, spoke to Israel about 500 years before the time of Christ. And he spoke to the people of Jerusalem when they had just come back from being in exile. For over 70 years, they had been uh, cast out of the homeland they had known for a very long time. And when they had come back, it was a city without walls. They had lost their temple, which was not just the center of the, their religious life, but the very foundation of their identity. And so they were also a people that had deep desires. And towards the end of this book, he gives them a picture of a day in which God will meet these deep desires of our hearts, when God will come back and return and set things right. And in verses 3 to 5, he talks about how he delivers his people from the enemies that are assailing them. He moves mountains to provide a way for his people to come to safety. Not only that, he talks about in verses 6 and 7, he says, On that day there will be no light, cold, or frost. And as appealing as that sounds to the, to the Floridians here in the audience... I do think that this is an instance where we don't really know what the Hebrew means, and so I went with the Greek, where in the Greek, when they made that translation, they used the words for cold or frost, because the original Hebrew is like the congealed precious ones. And so I think it's talking, lots of people think it's talking about the stars, so there'll be no sun and there'll be no stars, but there will also be no night, because the Lord will be our light. And that might not, that might be appealing to us in part because we might, oh gosh, we can now see everything in light of God. But it's even more meaningful to a people who didn't have artificial lights, where in dark they couldn't discern friend from foe, where the cover of darkness gave cover for evil. And Zechariah is saying, that's going to be no more. We're only going to know the light of God. And not only that, he talks about this living water that goes out to the Dead Sea and out to the Mediterranean 
And it's living water that is constant and continual. Because in Jerusalem, they lived and died by the rains. They didn't have consistent sources of water. And yet here he talks about a day is coming in which you will not only have water, but water that gives you life. And it will always be there such that it overflows to to, to your boundaries and gives life to others as well. And lastly, he says in verse 9 that uh, God will be their king and that God will be one that God will at last be king over all and that everyone will acknowledge him as such. This is what the people of Israel would have been longing for. And God is saying, I am going to come, set everything right, and meet the deepest desires of your hearts. And this is meaningful for me because Advent gives room for our pains Oftentimes in the season leading up to Christmas, we're bombarded by Hallmark Channel movies where everything is great or ends up great. Or we're bombarded by sentimentality that if you're walking through hardship, it might not feel like you're welcome. But in Advent, God invites you to be honest about the pains and aches of your life and bring them before God and say, Lord, I trust you with this. I trust that you are going to do something with this. And so in our pains, we wait with confidence. But in our comforts, we wait with humility. Because as we look around at the world around us and long for things to be set right, eventually our gaze will fall upon ourselves and we will realize that we also need to be made right in some way too, that we are not exempt, that, uh, that we need to be made new as well. And that's what Psalm 50 speaks to. It's talking to the people of Israel who perhaps participated in the sacrificial system in a, a regular basis, but they also participated in the unjust systems of the world around them. And Psalm 50 is talking to these people of Israel and saying, you need to be made new too. It says in verse 4, God is coming with storm and tempest, and he's coming not to judge those other, those bad nations, those bad people, but he's coming to judge his people. And we didn't read the rest of it, but here's my paraphrase of it for you. In verses 7 to 13, he essentially says, look, I'm not mad about the sacrifices you do. You do those all the time. But I have more cattle than Texas. I am not hungry for more meat. Here is what I want. I want you to give me thanks in every aspect of your life. And I want you to trust me in the deepest, most troubling aspects of your life. And I want you to paraphrase the words of Micah 6. I want you to, do, to be just, to do justice. God is saying, I want you to have intimate relationship with me in all of your life, not just an occasional transaction. And so that's what God calls us to. And so that's why Lent, or that's why like Lent, Advent is a penitential season for us to prepare our hearts to receive our King. 
Because in our aches, it might be easy to grow bitter and forget God. But in our comforts, it might be easy to grow self-assured. In our, sorry, in our aches, it might be easy for us to grow bitter and think God has forgotten us. But in our comforts, it might be easy for us to become self-assured and us ourselves forget God. But I don't think we always have to be looking over our shoulders wondering if we're good enough. Paul in the Thessalonians passage prays for the people that they would be ready for Christ at his coming. And he doesn't pray as if, well, I don't know if it's going to happen, watch out. He prays with confidence that God is working in them. And that's in the same way that Jesus says when this is coming, he says, raise your heads, have confidence, because the, the system of laws that pointed us to what is good could not make us good. But Christ in his first coming made us good in his sight. And as we come to him with our desires, as we come to him with our aches and pains, as we come to him in our comforts, he will make us people of his kingdom. And so before I conclude, I just want to have a caveat here that for some of us type A folks, all this talk about waiting may seem like a waste of time. Why wait when there are things that we can go do right now? Why wait when the world is so messed up? But waiting in God is never wasted. One, because it's not a passive waiting. As we wait, our hearts are transformed. But waiting also gives us hope for the transformation of our common lives. Because if we aren't waiting for a coming king to set everything right, as we look at our hearts and the world before us, we will be overwhelmed if we're going to try and do it all ourselves. You can take your pick of issues that are near and dear to your heart, be it abortion or creation care or racial injustice or just the lack of uh, the deep divisions in our culture, whatever it is that you see, if you think it's all on you, you're going to see it and be paralyzed and think, man, I can't do anything. But as we wait in Christ, the invitation for us is to just enjoy the hors d'oeuvres that we've received and start giving others that foretaste as well, hoping that God is going to come in and he will set everything right and our labors will not be wasted. And so this Advent season, let, let, let us train to wait for our coming king. And here's a small way that we can do that, a suggestion courtesy of Hannah King, an Anglican priest in South Carolina. So lots of us spend a decent amount of time preparing our homes for Christmas and here's a small way that we can prepare our hearts. So a big theme of Advent is light and darkness. And the sun is setting earlier now. And so each day, or just however often as you can, I invite you to, once the sun has gone down, sit in a dark room and light a candle. And let the, the, that small light start to fill that space. And ask God to stir up in you holy discomfort. Name those deep longings that you have or those deep complacencies and pour out your heart to God, being honest about where you are. But then also, 
ask God to stir up a holy confidence that as we give these deep longings or complacency to God, we trust that they will have their end in Christ who is coming to set all things right. Please pray with me. Jesus, I thank you that you see this world and you are not aloof or far off. But God, you long to make it right. And so Lord, please stir up in us holy discomfort because things are actually wrong. And God, stir up in us holy confidence that you are going to come and set things right. Teach us to be a people who wait in between your first and second coming. Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen.